morning, church. If you're visiting, we welcome you warmly. For the record, that is more warmly than I am welcoming all of the other people who I know. You are welcome, but lukewarmly. For the rest of you, very warmly. Um, I would uh, encourage all of you, uh, stay after church for a few minutes. We have coffee and snacks um, out, in the, out in the foyer. From John chapter 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. When we come before an awesome God, a holy God, if we are honest with ourselves, we realize how short we fall from what God has called us to be and what God commands us to be. Confession is the time of worship when we come before God acknowledging our sin and God's faithfulness to forgive us, knowing that in Christ we are already forgiven. Church, confession is an important time. It reminds us of who we are. It reminds us of who Jesus is. And I believe that we are most capable of hearing what the Holy Spirit says to us after a time of confession. So let's pray together. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of thy Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways by the glory of your name. Amen. So we just started a new sermon series last week, and today Tyler will be preaching from Exodus 16. And although I begged him not to, he's asking me to read the entire chapter of Exodus 16. So you may notice in the seat in front of you is uh, not in front of every seat, but there's a, a small wooden thing that's screwed into some of those seats, and they're just about big enough for your fingers Hold on, folks. Here comes Exodus 16. <laughs> we'll see in 36 verses. They set out for Milam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sinai, 
which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out of this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you are grumbling against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall shall each take as an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. Then they measured it with an omer. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. For sharing, Tyler. Let no one leave any of it over until the morning. And they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it until the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as they could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept until the morning. And they laid it aside till the morning, as Moses commanded them, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. 
And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now in the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread of which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. And the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. An omer is a tenth part of of an ephah. Let's pray. God, you are better to us than we deserve. God, thank you for this day. For this Sabbath, God, we don't gather the way the Israelites gathered in the wilderness, but we rely on you no less than they did. God, may we faithfully gather. May we faithfully rest. God, may we be a light to the world around us. God, may the things that we do please you. God, may you remind us that it's not the things that we do that earn salvation. God, but only the work of Jesus gives us salvation. God, thank you for the worship that we could participate in together as a group. God, I pray for Tyler. God, that you would fill him and us with the Holy Spirit. God, may we be your people. In your name I would pray. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Chris, for so kindly reading all of Exodus 16. Um, We are, as Chris said, back in the book of Exodus for our sermon series. And so we're trying to tell the story of God's people going from slavery in Egypt to the promised land. And unfortunately for them, they don't get to go straight there. And so they find themselves in the wilderness for 40 years. And so last week, Greg shared with us a story from the end of Exodus 15, where the thirsty group of Israelites start grumbling when they find unclean, bitter water in the wilderness. So they're thirsty. They go and they try to find water. And when they end up finding it, it's bitter, it's unclean, it's impure, and they can't drink it. And thankfully, God heals the water. But what Greg showed us last week and what we saw is that the bitter water was really just a pointer to the people's bitter hearts. That the water being healed needed to happen so that they could survive that day, maybe. But their bitter hearts needed to be healed so that they could actually be with God. So, as, as it goes for us humans, one moment when we're thirsty, the next moment we're probably going to get hungry. <laughs> and so that's our story this morning in Exodus 16. So we have three little movements in our story this morning. First, the people are going to grumble, a familiar piece. Then God's going to show up, 
And then thirdly, God's going to provide gifts from heaven. So the people grumble, God shows up, and God provides gifts from heaven. And so what we're hopefully going to see is that God is so kind and so gracious that he's in the business of not just dealing with our day-to-day problems, not just dealing with the, the things like hunger and thirst that we have every day, but also dealing with our biggest spiritual problems as well. And so for the people of Israel and for us, there's something wrong with us. Um, we're hungry, we're thirsty, and we're going to try to see how God can prove himself kind and gracious and feed us this morning. So let me pray as we begin. God, you are a good father who gives good gifts to your children. Help us to realize our hunger for you and be fed and satisfied by your words this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So first, the people grumble. So in verse 1, as Chris just read for us, it starts off, and the people are in the wilderness of sin. Um, And first thing to note is that the wilderness of sin is actually probably pronounced the wilderness of scene. So I know you're probably thinking like, whoa, they're in the wilderness of sin. That's crazy. No, they're in the wilderness of scene. Um, And it's a place between Elam and Sinai. And so that's how the text starts. And then the text tells us it's been a month and a half since the people were in Egypt. So the author of Exodus, Moses, he's telling us two things right at the start. He's saying these two things are important. One, Sinai is important because the distance of where the people are to where they need to be is measured in terms of how far they are from Sinai. So they're saying Sinai is important because that's where they're going to meet God. That's where they're going to get the Ten Commandments. That's where they're going to be formed as a nation, as a people. So that's where they're going. And then he's saying what else is important is where they've been, the Exodus, Egypt. Forty-five days ago, they were in Egypt. So those are kind of the two points that we can kind of orient ourselves as we start to look at the passages is saying, here's where they've been in the Exodus, and here's where they're going. They're going to Sinai. So you would think that as a people, they'd be pretty happy with how things are going. Like 45 days ago, they were enslaved. Things weren't going so well. God's brought them out of that. And they even know a little bit about where they're going. So you'd think, like, they should be pretty happy with their leaders, right? Well, yeah, I don't know about that. (laughs) So right in verse 2, it starts right away. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses. The whole congregation. So apparently every single one of you, which sounds horrible. If all of you started grumbling at the same time at me, I don't know what I would do. (laughs) It's like there's no way out. (laughs) I guess that way. Um, So... (laughs) So thankfully, our whole congregation isn't grumbling yet. Um, But uh, so the whole congregation is grumbling. And here's what they say. They say, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And so just like last week, here comes the grumbling. It's like. It's like me at 11 a.m. every Sunday morning, just grumbling starts coming up. People are looking around. They're like, where's that noise coming from? Just my stomach. It's fine. So the people start grumbling. And I want to pause here for a minute because it's a little astounding to me. Forty-five days ago, they were in a place where every single male child was killed. 
by Pharaoh. That's the place they're coming from. They're not coming from a place like they, the story that they tell doesn't seem to line up with reality. I don't I don't know what a meat pot is, but I guess it's just a pot of meat. So their their picture of this is like pots of meat and bread and all this food. And they seem to have totally forgotten that Pharaoh was killing their children, that they were working to make bricks without straw, and they were living an incredibly challenging life just 45 days ago. They were groaning. And somehow, in this little bit of time, they seem to have forgotten. And they're looking around, and they have this amnesia, and they're saying, you know, being led by God out here in the wilderness... We don't like it. We don't like it. And so they start looking around for someone to blame. So they're looking around and and naturally their their eyes kind of fall on Moses and Aaron. And so they look to Moses and Aaron and they start grumbling. They start complaining. Let's let's talk about that grumbling for a moment, though, because grumbling to start isn't a bad thing by itself. Like. Grumbling is our is our physical reaction to when we need food. If any of you have fasted before, you know that at a certain point your stomach starts grumbling or you just you miss lunch or something. Your stomach starts grumbling and you're hungry. And so it's not a bad reaction in and of itself. Because it's a marker that God designed us to need food. God designed us to need to be satisfied by food. And so that's where they were at. They started grumbling because they were hungry. So I want to start by blessing that part of the Israelite story. Because I think it's really, really easy to to look at the Israelites and immediately be like, ah, those just foolish people. Like they just mess it up over and over again. And to look at them and say, if we were in the same position, come on. We would we would trust God. We would be in a good spot with him. So I, I think it's important to start and say, you know, They were hungry, and it's okay that they were hungry. That's okay. That was part of their experience right there. But, so what else does grumbling do? What does the grumbling of their stomachs do? It highlights their neediness, right? It highlights that they are not able to live this life by themselves. That when you're out in the wilderness, and... You're in a deserted place and there's barely any water. You need God to heal the water for you and there's no food and you're hungry. You need you need something. It highlights their dependence on something bigger than them. But here's the jump to make. The physical hunger that they have, the physical hunger in their stomachs is a pointer to a deeper emotional or spiritual hunger. That's the jump that we make here, because to start, the Israelites are physically hungry. And so God is going to God plans on physically providing for them. But there's an emotional and spiritual hunger here as well. And if we're honest. Our lives don't totally satiate the hungers that we have. So think about it this way. We. We have things that we spend every day doing, things we spend every day pursuing, working really, really hard at. We work really, really hard at things like school, our work, our sports, our volunteering, our hobbies. There are things that we work so, so hard at. 
And we work hard at them, partly because we think that they satisfy us. And in some ways they do. They do satisfy us. But those things never quite satisfy enough. And so the hunger that we have is deeper than that. Now, in our culture, we often glorify hunger. Recently, I was listening to an interview with Jimmy Butler, who is a professional basketball player for the Miami Heat. And Jimmy Butler's had a really up-and-down career. And so they were asking him, like, how's your time going in Miami, playing for this new team? And, and Jimmy Butler retold this story of him being at the gym at 4.30 in the morning during the off-season, just working out and getting in as many reps as he could super early in the morning during the off-season. And they asked the natural question of why do you wake up at 4.30 a.m. to shoot a basketball into a hoop? And he said that he was hungry. He said he was hungry for a championship. And so when I heard that, it made, it made me wonder two things. First, it made me wonder, why does he think that an NBA championship is going to satisfy his hunger? Like, at what point did he do the math on it and go, I feel incomplete, I feel unsatisfied with my life, and what's going to satisfy it is a sports championship. At some point, he did the math and said, that's what's going to do it. And so my first question was, why? Why do you think that's going to do it? And then my, my second question was an internal reflective one, and that was, what do I spend my time focusing on that I think is going to satisfy me? Like, what are the things that I put my effort towards, that I work so hard on, that I think are going to satisfy my hungers? Is it like winning a bunch of races? Some of you know I like to run and bike. Like, is it winning a bunch of races? Will that satisfy me? Or maybe like being liked and respect by everyone, respected by everyone in town. Maybe that would satisfy me a bit. Or having a family that's really impressive. I'm not sure totally what I'm after that's going to satisfy me, but something. But it's something, and I think we're all after something that we think is going to satisfy us. And so it can, it can be challenging to parse out exactly what our hunger is. But I think with a bit of reflection, we can see what we think is going to satisfy our hungers. Because what we think is going to satisfy our hungers is what we spend our time doing. It's what we spend the hours of our day doing. And one of the ways in which this happens is we think that if we achieve this thing, we're going to be satisfied. We think if we achieve something, then we'll finally be satisfied. And that incessant, awful grumbling that's lodged in our soul, that incessant grumbling, we think it's going to go away when we finally achieve what we have achieved. And for Jimmy Butler, it's an NBA championship. He thinks that's finally going to cease with the incessant grumbling. And I don't know what it is for you, and I don't totally know what it is for me, but there's things that we pursue that we think are going to get rid of this grumbling that's lodged in us. I was talking with Greg about this word grumbling because I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out because the, the Hebrew word for grumble is the same word as like to stay the night. 
which seems, seems totally unrelated. I was like, what does it mean to lodge or to stay the night and to be grumbling? Like, I couldn't quite figure out how that verb was the same verb. Um, and so I don't want to make too much of it, but here's a piece of what I think it is. It's that grumbling really lodges itself in us. Grumbling gets deep inside of us, and then it, and then it just flows out of us. Because when we're not satisfied, that grumbling just stays there and it sticks there. And we're discontent with the things around us and we just want to change everything. And so when that grumbling is lodged in our hearts, we have, we have these different options to say, how are we going to satisfy this hunger that we feel? How are we going to satisfy this grumbling that we feel? And so we grumble and the people of Israel grumble. And the people of Israel at this point, they just think it's about meat and bread. That's what they think it's about. But God is going to show them that it's about way, way more than that. And so that, that brings us to our second point this morning, and that's that God shows up and he makes a promise. So the good news comes pretty early in our passage this morning, right in verse 4. God says to Moses in verse 4, he says, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. And then Moses relays this message to the people in verse 6, where it says, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and in the evening meat to eat, and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling. So, we see that God's solution is kind of twofold. His solution to the grumbling. His first solution is he's going to rain bread from heaven which sounds super exciting. And if you're a hungry person and bread started raining from heaven, that would be exciting to you. Um, also meat coming from heaven as well. So that's the first solution is like a very practical one. And I think that's really cool that God decides to be so practical and be like, you're hungry. Okay. Like bread from heaven, meat from heaven. That's how we're going to start. But then his second part of the solution is that they're going to know him. That they're going to know that he's the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. That's the second part of the solution. So the first part deals with the practical piece. The first part is like, you're hungry? Okay, I'll feed you. But here's why I'm going to feed you. That's the second part. The why I'm going to feed you is so that you're going to know and you're going to not forget that I brought you out of slavery. That I brought you out of a, a terrible, terrible place. And you're going to know me. So one of the primary ways that an infant learns who their parent is, and I'm not like a, an expert on this. I didn't even ask Grace about this, so this is dangerous, talking about medical things without asking my wife. Um, but one of the, so attachment is a really important thing for infants and for children. You get attached to your parents um, and this happens through like a mother feeding her child, through a father holding her child, a lot through physical touch and through care. And secure attachments for children, for babies and infants, is one of the most important things for their future development, for their like neurological, for their brain to develop well. Those attachments with their parents are really, really important, especially early on. And the way that we get attached to our parents is by their care for us. 
And so if God is our father, and if God is the father of the people of Israel, then one of the things that they need more than anything is secure attachment to him. And that secure attachment comes by being cared for by him. And so one of the one of the primary ways that a baby gets a secure attachment to their parents is by being fed by them. So this is what God is doing. Yeah, they need to eat. Yeah, they're hungry. But you can go days and days and days without food. Greg talked about that last week. You can go, you can go two, three, four weeks without, getting, without feeding. But it's the attachment that's important. That these people need to know that God is their father. So here he is offering to feed them, but he's also offering even more. And this is what it says in verse 9. Moses has Aaron say to the people, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I heard the grumbling of the people. So God is going to come near to them. Sometimes we want the food without the coming near. Like sometimes we want to be fed without actually going near to God. And God is attaching those two things and saying, I'm going to feed you, but it's me who's going to feed you. You're not going to just get these gifts without me. And this is God's kindness towards us. The people of Israel are throwing a temper tantrum, essentially. It's a temper tantrum. They've, they've been out of slavery for 45 days and they're throwing a temper tantrum and God just responds with this kindness. He responds with this kindness saying, I'm going to feed you and I'm not just going to feed you bread, I'm going to feed you meat too, which is a luxury in the ancient Near East. So the people grumble and groan and God decides to show up. And then our third point this morning is that God provides gifts from heaven. So that very night, there was quail, which is a type of bird they could eat. And I'm not, like, big into eating birds, but I guess you can eat quail. So they got quail. And I don't know how that went down, if, like, a bunch of quail just landed and, like, looked at them. But, or if they, like, chased them or sent the kids out to, like, I don't know how it went down. Um, or maybe just dead birds, like, dropped from the sky. <laughs> don't think about it too hard. <laughs> so... So quail shows up, and then the other, the other thing that shows up is uh, the next morning, manna shows up. And it says it's flaky, it's coriander seed-like, which I guess is like the seed of parsley. I was Googling this. <laughs> what is coriander? <laughs> um, I think the, the important thing is it's white. Um, so, and the, the text says that people are confused. They weren't confused about the birds, so we know the bird thing was somewhat normal. Um, so they weren't confused about the birds, but they were confused about the manna. So there's some funny words in, in Hebrew. They're just words that in Hebrew don't sound like what they mean in English. Like the Hebrew word dog means fish. It's kind of weird. And the Hebrew word um, who means he. Um, and the Hebrew word ma means what? Um, so mana, manna, actually is like a compound word just meaning what is it? So they, they didn't even know what to call it, so they just called it, what is it? 
which is really weird because someone must have walked into the tent and been like, hey, look, there's what is it out there? And then someone else was like, let's eat the what is it? And apparently they just went with that for years and years. Um, They kept on calling it what is it? So God gives some instructions for how they should interact with the what is it, the manna. So it's, it's, it's like as far as the eye can see, I guess, just covered the whole ground, like frost. That's what they compared it to. And so God kind of gives two rules, and this, it's all verse 16 to 29 are just kind of the rules and the interaction about how God said, this is how you're going to receive the gift of food that I'm giving you. And so the first rule was you can only collect what you need for a day's allotment. And so it says they got an omer worth, which was like two liters. So just think one of those soda cans, those big soda cans. So they got a soda can worth of food, which seems like a solid amount of food to me. And I'm like a hungry person. Some of you have had me over for dinner and you know this, like I eat a lot. But a, a two liters of soda, canned food, bread, seems good to me. So that's how much they get. And if they collect too much, what we see ends up happening is when if they collected too much and they stored it away in the morning, there are worms in it and it stinks up their whole tent. So uh, pretty much immediately, God gives them a rule and they break it right away. And then the other rule that they end up having is they can't they can't collect on the Sabbath. So God says, whatever you collect on Friday, the Sabbath was on Saturday for the Israelites. Whatever you collect on Friday, I'm going to multiply that and you're going to have enough on Saturday. And then right away again, they walk out. A bunch of people go out on Saturday on the Sabbath. They're like, I'm going to get some food and there's nothing there. So God right away, right away, God provides little guidelines for here's how you're going to enter into this relationship with me. And the people end up not trusting God to provide their daily needs. Right away, they, God says, I'm going to provide your daily bread. And they say, mm, let's collect for two days. That seems wise. In Deuteronomy 8, which Moses also probably wrote, Moses talks about this story in Exodus 16. And here's what he says. He says, he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land in which you shall lack nothing, and you shall eat and eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. So Moses, looking at this story, says, this is about God providing your daily bread. So, I'm going to ask you a Sunday school answer question. Guess who quotes Deuteronomy 8 in the New Testament? Jesus. It's always the right answer. Guess when he quotes it, though. In Matthew 4, when he's being tempted in the wilderness. So Jesus goes into the wilderness, just like the Israelites were in the wilderness. Jesus goes in for 40 days. Like the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years, and Jesus is there, and what does Satan say to him? Satan says, you should, uh, how about you, um, this is my loose translation, how about you turn these stones into loaves of bread? Turn these stones into loaves of bread. You're hungry, you haven't eaten, 
for 40 days. Jesus was hungry, just like we get hungry. And so Jesus is hungry, and Satan says, why don't you go and uh, turn these stones into loaves of bread? So why, why does Satan ask that question? He asks that question because he's seeing if Jesus is going to trust God to satisfy his hunger. So Jesus is going through the same exact test that the Israelites went through. Jesus is hungry, it says. It says Jesus is hungry, and Satan says, you could just turn these stones into loaves of bread. You could try to satisfy your hunger by yourself. And how does Jesus respond? He quotes Deuteronomy 8, which is talking about our passage, and he says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus, when tempted to satisfy his hunger himself, resists the temptation and lets God satisfy his hunger, which he does. Because just a few moments later, Satan leaves and it says, Behold, angels came and were ministering to them. So Jesus passes the same test that Israel fails. Jesus is the son that lets the father satisfy his hunger. Jesus lets God satisfy his hunger. And if you've ever been super, super hungry, for me it's like after a long day of, a long day of like biking or hiking or something, you're super, super hungry. And so in October, Brian, Gill, and I and some friends went up mountain biking, and we finished a really long day of riding, and I was starving. And so we, like, made plans to go to some restaurant to get some nice sandwiches. And so we're on the way in the, in the van to the restaurant, and all of a sudden, someone finds a bag of candy in the van. <laughs> and... All of a sudden, it's like pure chaos. There's wrappers flying everywhere. And I don't even know how many pieces I ate, but I'm going to guess that it was more than my daily intake (laughs) in terms of calories. I think I just kept on eating and eating and eating. And about five minutes later, we're still on the way to the restaurant, and I'm like sitting in the back just groaning because I've eaten so much candy. Um, And turns out candy was not what I needed. Like the way to refuel after a hard day of working out is not only Reese's Pieces. Um, This picture, though, of me groaning (laughs) with a stomach ache is essentially the picture of our human experience. This is what we do as human beings. What we do as human beings is we feel hungry. We feel like, hey, this life isn't quite satisfying me. Like, things might be okay or they might not be, but wherever we are, our life isn't totally satisfying us. Our school, our work, our grades, our families, things aren't quite as we want them to be. We feel hungry, and so we go, let me, uh, let me take matters into my own hands here. Let me go find some things to satisfy my hunger. And when we go and try to satisfy our hunger with things, we end up sick. And then we feel bad, and then we repeat the cycle. And this, this is like what evil does in this world, though. Think back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God says, you, God says I'm going to give you every single thing, every single thing except for one tree. There's only one tree you can't eat of. You can eat every single other thing. And Adam and Eve go, I'm hungry for that tree. I want that fruit. 
And so that's the lie of evil in this world. It's that God is holding out on us. It's that God is holding out on us and God is saying, I'm not going to give you what is actually going to satisfy you. And evil says, you know what will satisfy you? The thing that God doesn't want you to do. And so at the root of all sin, I think in many ways, is seeking to be satisfied by the wrong things. That's at the root of all sin, seeking to satisfy our hunger in the wrong places. That's how it was for Adam and Eve, and it's how it is for us today as well. So manna then is an awesome gift from heaven. Like manna is super awesome, bunch of food, bunch of bread raining from heaven. But what Jesus says later on is they ate manna and they died in the wilderness. So manna only partially solves this problem. So in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, Jesus miraculously feeds 5,000 people. And right after he miraculously feeds 5,000 people, um, the day after, some people come up to Jesus. They come up to him the day after and they say, hey, Jesus, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Weird question, considering he just fed 5,000 people. But we'll go on. What work do you perform? Again, weird. Then he says, then they say, our fathers ate man in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they're, they're quoting Exodus 16, our passage this morning. So Jesus fed 5,000 people yesterday, and the people come to him and are like, so, what do you got, Jesus? What are you going to do today? Which, by the way, is how we often interact with God. <laughs> we're like, God, you, you showed me you were real yesterday. You showed me how much you cared for me yesterday. But I need a little more than my daily bread, so let's get chopping with caring for me. So here's how Jesus responds. In verse 32, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And guess how they respond. This is too good. I can't make this up. In verse 41, they grumble. They grumble. Just like their ancestors did. The Israelites grumbled. The Jews grumble. And as they grumble, Jesus says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And so here's what I want us to walk away with this from. The Israelites are hungry in our passage, and so they grumble, and God provides them manna to eat. But they still die. They don't make it to the promised land because ultimately that only solves their physical hunger in that moment. It doesn't solve their spiritual hunger. And so when Jesus comes and calls himself the bread of life, he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So again, the physical hunger points to the spiritual hunger. And Jesus is saying, I'm the only one who can satisfy the spiritual hunger. And so let's ask ourselves again, what do we think is going to satisfy us? Is it comfort and security? Is it belonging or peace of mind? Or do we think 
success for ourselves or for our children maybe will satisfy us. There are all these things that we think are going to satisfy us. And God gives the greatest gift to us in the person of Jesus. He gives Jesus who is the bread of life. And for those of us who have followed Jesus for a while or are just starting to follow him, we often spend our days grumbling at God. We grumble at God saying, he isn't providing for me in the way that I want him to. He just isn't, he isn't working how I want him to. He isn't satisfying me. But what that's like is it's like me complaining that the nice sandwich I got after eating 2,000 calories worth of candy wasn't satisfying. Or it's like, it's like me complaining, I didn't really like reading my Bible after I spent an hour on Instagram. Like, it doesn't, when we spend our lives filling ourselves up with things that can't actually satisfy us, and then we go to God and we're like, he's not satisfying me, it's usually, it's usually a, it's, it's a me problem. So that's the bad news. The bad news is that we're grumbling people, we deserve to die, and the stuff that we think is satisfying us, the stuff that we keep going back to over and over again, it doesn't satisfy us. But God, in his infinite kindness, just keeps doing one thing. God keeps offering himself to us over and over and over again. And that's the good news, that Jesus, despite the fact that we keep going to other places to satisfy ourselves, Jesus keeps coming back to us and saying, here's me. Let me satisfy you. Here's me. And so Jesus offers himself as the bread of life. And so our final, my final illustration is this table right here. Works out perfectly. <laughs> We get to take communion because we are hungry people. We're hungry people, so we're going to come to the table to let God feed us. So I'd like for us to pray the Lord's Prayer together. So if you have a Bible, um, it's in Matthew 6, 9 to 13. If you don't have one, maybe you know it, or you can just listen as we pray. Um, and as you turn there, or you can just recite it if you know it, Matthew 6, 9 to 13. As you turn there, I'll just say that we'll end the Lord's Prayer with the familiar refrain of, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever, which isn't actually in the Matthew 6 portion. Um, so let's uh, pray with me the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. That's our prayer this morning as we come to the table. And if you heard it, Jesus brings it up again when he teaches us how to pray. He teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And so just like the Israelites were told to keep some manna, the end of the passage, just the Israelites were told, keep some manna in front of the Ark of the Covenant 
so that you'll always remember how God has provided for you. In that same way, in that same theme of remembrance, we're told to practice this meal, to do this in remembrance of him. To take communion, the Lord's Supper, because as we celebrate Jesus coming, dying, and rising, we're reminded that he satisfies our greatest hunger and our greatest need, which is to be reconciled to our Heavenly Father. And he did this by taking our sins upon him. And if we're honest, our faith, it's weak sometimes, feeble sometimes, and it needs to be strengthened. And that's one of the ways that people have talked about communion as a way to strengthen and nourish our faith. Jesus is present with us by his spirit. And this bread and this juice in front of you, it's just bread and juice. Nothing magical has happened, but it symbolizes Jesus' body and blood. And God sets it apart for a great spiritual purpose. And that's to strengthen and encourage our hearts and our faith. And so we do this for a reason, because Jesus told us to. And he told us that in remembering him, he would strengthen and encourage us. And so, you're hungry. Will you let God feed you? Will you let God satisfy you? And if you're hungry, and if you want to be fed and satisfied by Jesus, then this meal is for you. That's the only requirement. It's that you acknowledge your need of the cleansing blood of Jesus. That's the only requirement. And it's a family meal. We take it together, and we're encouraged and strengthened and nourished together. So let me pray for our meal. God, thank you for these ordinary things, for this bread and this juice. We pray that you would set them apart for a great spiritual purpose, to nourish our spiritual lives so that when our hungers arise, we might turn as children to their Father in order to be fed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.